recording bootlegs, selling bootlegs, all illegal. We are not advocating for or encouraging the recording and trading and selling of bootlegs. And we are also not lawyers. So none of this constitutes legal advice (laughs) at all. Recording bootlegs, trading bootlegs and selling bootlegs are legal. That is straight up a fact. And under and that that fact underlines everything else you're about to hear great (laughs) but if you do have a copy of the original broadway cast of 1776 i will go to jail for it (laughs) (laughs) i will do the time so Um, so dm us for leah's for leah's information and we'll connect you if you happen to have that Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Welcome back to Partial View Podcast, where we have a couple of guests here to talk about bootlegs today, uh, specifically theater bootlegs. Um, and a couple of the different issues that are surrounding them. More than a couple. More than a couple. So we're really happy to welcome Leah Holstein to the podcast. Leah is a theater fan. That's it. That's all that qualifies her to be on this podcast. She's never worked professionally in theater. But she can have multi-hour long discussions with you comparing all the recorded Mrs. Lovitz, why Wicked is considered so overrated a musical that it has now become underrated, why I Love You Because only says it's a Pride and Prejudice adaptation so it has an easier tagline to market, or how you could fix Love Never Dies if you just let it be a psycho thriller. She's been stalking Broadway.com and reading librettos online since she was 12, is a proud member of the chronic illness and disability community, and is very happy to be here. Hi, guys. We're so happy to have you. Yes, so excited. And our other guest is Dara Epstein. And Dara is a singer, actor, writer, and facilitator who loves collaborative work, building community through theater, and all things musical theater. She's currently getting her master's at NYU's Gallatin School with a concentration in equity and advocacy in theater performance, and also holds a master's in applied theater from Goldsmiths at the University of London. She believes that theater is a medium that is uniquely equipped to confront our assumptions and be a catalyst for social change. So we are super ready for all of the hot takes about bootlegs that are going to come out of this. Welcome, Dara. Before we start, do we want to talk about what we're enjoying recently? Like, it can be in the theater world. It can just be in the pop culture world. If you guys have anything that you're fixated on recently, we'd love to just hear about it. I have been talking to Alex about this, actually. There, So I got into the Buffering podcast recently. And what I really love is the Buffering podcast has these songs for each episode. And it's like the Buffy, the musical that shouldn't exist. Um, like, I don't think Buffy should be a musical, but if it did, these are the songs that should be on it because they're great. So um, check that out on Spotify. I'm, I'm obsessed. Wait, are they writing a song to represent each episode For each of episode. Buffy? Mm-hmm. It's great. That's cool. That's also like, I don't know how many 
episodes of Buffy there are probably a lot more episodes than there are songs in a normal musical. About 150. I've been watching it for the first time for over a year now. I've been taking it slow, granted. And I, you've, you've uh, sent me a couple of the songs, and they're so good. And they're so fun. Sometimes they're better than the episodes, yeah. depending on the season. <laughs> Dara, what about you? I have been watching Abbott Elementary ah, on Hulu, yes. which is mm-hmm. delightful. It's just so much fun. It's so pure. It's mockumentary style and... Tonally, it reminds me of Parks and Rec, which is one of my favorite TV series of all time. And it's just like a nice kind of refreshing and also really, really funny and really smart TV show. And, you know, I think we all need that right now. Yeah. Similarly, like in non-theater, I finally watched A League of Their Own. And <gasps> for the first time, so good. not the movie, the TV adaptation. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just feel like <laughs> no. The level of nerds in here are like, you've never seen that movie. No, 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 no. The the, the Amazon video, right. like Amazon Prime TV adaptation, um, that Abby Jacobson wrote and stars in. And I binged it so fast last weekend, and I loved literally every second of it highly recommend if you haven't watched it yet i think my like theater happy thing recently has been i at 31 years old finally saw once on this island for the first time and it was so delightful it was i i saw the constellation theater company production in dc and like i i knew the entire story and I knew a couple of the songs, but like that story is just so, it's just so well told. It's such a beautiful ensemble piece. They really like grasped onto the joy of it. I really loved it. And it's. And Timoon turns into a tree. Timoon changed into a tree. This production had such a good little Timoon. Oh my goodness. She was fire. She was absolute fire. I just... Aaron's and Flaherty take my heart. Take my heart. Yeah. Honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did that when I was eight with Once Upon December. Yeah, so. exactly. Correct. They... <laughs> it's been but yeah, so that's my like theater happy thing of the moment, I think, is just how much I love this musical after hearing about it for so many years. I have a fun, brief Lynn Aaron's anecdote. Um, <laughs> but years ago, when I was in college, Lynn participated in a panel of female musical theater writers that was being put on through Nymph, I think. And... It was at the Lincoln Center Barnes and Noble, RIP. And afterwards, I went up to her. I like went into this event with a a question locked and loaded, but what didn't get called on during the event. So I went up to her after and basically was like, how do you and Steven write such wildly different and always so perfect for the story you're telling opening numbers like the difference between say the opening of ragtime like yeah like operetta in itself Mm -hmm. and then like the short and sweet little lucky stiff opener i was like 
how and I referenced those two things because I think they're really contrasting Mm -hmm. and Lynn's reaction to my question was like why do you know Lucky Stiff? (laughs) (laughs) Wait so you were like please tell me you're genius and she was like you nerd basically (laughs) (laughs) I truly don't even remember her answer to the question I'm sure it was very smart and lovely but then I was just like I impressed Lynn by knowing an obscure show. That reminds me of in the same Barnes and Noble, I went to a Scott Allen CD release party and I told Scott Allen in the signing line, your songs were the first songs I ever downloaded illegally. And he just kind of looked at me. (laughs) He was like, cool, thanks for supporting Signed my CD and moved on. Alex, that is a perfect segue into bootlegs. <laughs> it really is. It really totally is. All right, cool. So <laughs> let's jump in. What is your history with or relationship with bootlegs? So when I was uh, a young teen on the internet. How all great stories start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was made aware of the existence of bootlegs and like I don't remember the first one that I watched or listened to because it was just so long ago and it's also like so embedded in my DNA I guess but like I remember browsing people's like I don't know like GeoCities web pages or whatever in like the mid 2000s that had like the list of bootlegs that they had like for sale or for trade and like people's live journals and stuff and then things kind of like migrated over to Tumblr and I feel like that was a big shift that happened kind of in the early 2010s ish because then people uh including me would post clips of bootlegs that they had recorded and I used to uh, nobody come arrest me I guess but I when I was younger I used to record shows pretty often and so I have a ton of like random audios of things and like I haven't looked at them in years so I'm sure I've forgotten what a lot of them even are but basically all of that is to say that like I have no real like moral objection to bootlegs and I certainly have consumed my fair share over the last I don't know probably like 15 plus years but I I do find the the conversations around them to often be really really frustrating Mm -hmm. as as a theater professional I I agree with that I absolutely had one of those, I don't think I built mine on GeoCities. I think it was Angel Fire, but snaps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I definitely had one of those websites with your list and you'd like post on LiveJournal or whatever and link to your list. And it was such an elaborate subculture. And I similarly don't remember definitively the first one, but I think one of the first ones I do remember wasn't even really it wasn't like a live recording of a show it was somebody posted this was in a myspace group not even on live journal this was a few months before the rent movie came out and somebody had a leaked download of the movie soundtrack and was like dm me if you want it basically and so i did 
<laughs> and uh, that person is still truly one of my best friends to this day, which is hysterical. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's similarly like 15 plus years of my life. Leah, what's your history with bootlegs? Yeah. So anyone who's listening to this podcast will probably relate to this. I am an obsessive personality. If I find something I like, I go deep for a while after. So I would listen to an album and I would need to know like what the libretto was or you know what the dialogue was in between the songs. I remember specifically for Aida, I listened to the song and I was like, okay, how does this plot work? How do these two fall in love? And then eventually I found the full libretto and it made less sense. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I, so I listened to that and I remember seeing the revival of Les Mis that had Adam Jacobs and Celia Kane Bolger and Ali Adwalt and I, fell madly in love, not just with the show, but with that cast. And I would just go on YouTube and try to find clips of it. I remember the day that I first discovered that at the time, this is no longer true, if you just went Google video and searched for a Broadway show, sometimes you could have the whole damn thing pop up. And one day I saw a production of Wicked pop up and it was the one that I had seen. And I ditched out on a pool party for about an hour <laughs> to watch act one because I was like is this real is this gonna go away so I I kind of I dabbled in that in like high school as you said in my bio I have chronic illness and for a while I was very very debilitating basically couldn't get out of bed and bootlegs were my escape I went hard in I looked for everything I could find because I was obsessing with musical theater as a distraction and I couldn't get to a theater because I I couldn't leave my bed so that's when I started really watching it and finding a lot of comfort in it and a lot of fuel to obsess over something that wasn't related to anything medical and was something I talked about with my friends who were like seeing it in New York and I could be like, oh yeah, I didn't, I know I didn't see Fun Home, but I saw the bootleg and I had this incredible experience with it too and we can dissect it and have a lot of fun being complete nerds over it. Yeah. My next question for both of you is I'm really interested to know if you, it, it sounds like you have completely different, you might have completely different experiences with this. Do you primarily listen to or watch bootlegs of shows you haven't seen or shows that you want to watch again? I watch shows that if I think I'm going to see it in any form at some point, I won't watch the bootleg. Mm -hmm. I might save it for afterwards. So I use it to either see something that I know I'll never get to see, like the Pippin Revival. That's one of my favorite bootlegs. Mm -hmm. First of all, just the ability to rewind and watch that last light cue over again, because it's, I think, one of the most brilliant moments in theater uh, history. But also to just have a re memory, because it's so hard to remember each moment and to be able to, you know, it's, it's not like I'm going to look at it and have the same experience, but I'm going to look at it and remember the experience I had. And I also love to, like, compare the production so much. Like, I think especially ones that have you know, different performers or um, I think uh, great Comet performances are so fun to see because the audience interaction changes it so much and it's just a different show every time. So it's really fun to see how different place performances played out differently. So I I love it basically for going on a, on a deep dive that you, you can't do mm -hmm. without them. Like I kind of think bootlegs are their own art form almost in that way. There's something to be consumed in an entirely different way than live theater. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. Dara, what about you? For me, I'm trying to think about the the bootlegs that I've like actually sat down and watched recently. And honestly, a lot of it is like things that when they were running were kind of 
comfort shows for me, um, especially during the pandemic. I revisited like an old wedding singer bootleg that I've seen a bajillion times that was from like early previews. And instead of Someday, I think it's called, there's a different song in its place (laughs) that was only in the show, like in early previews. So that's kind of cool. And like, there's also an off-Broadway Spring Awakening that I've seen a bunch of times. But I have also used it to sort of investigate shows that I didn't get an opportunity to see. And, like, I watched a bootleg of Taboo a while ago, which is completely wild and is also a show that maybe makes less sense with the entire thing (laughs) put together (laughs) as opposed to just the cast album. So, I mean, I, I think it's, like, a little of both for me, but I also feel like... And I don't, I don't know if the two of you have had this experience also working in professional theater, but for me, it's almost a way to kind of turn the critical piece of my brain off because I'm only revisiting things that were fun for me mm-hmm. at the time in some way. And so, again, especially during the pandemic, it was very much escapism and and you know watching these shows that i had loved like in high school felt really like healing for me during that time and i often find when i'm sitting in a theater i'm like doing in-depth analysis in my brain without even really thinking about it and it kind of is nice to almost like zone out and watch something familiar in the same way that i can do that when i'm watching like Gilmore Girls or Parks and Rec or like something else that I've seen a million times. That's a really interesting way to put it as someone who really doesn't I don't really do bootlegs like it's never been a major part of my media consumption. Definitely when I was a teenager I would listen to like Adina Menzel concert bootlegs but like in terms of video I've never been able to get into like a video bootleg very much. Like, audio is different because, I don't know, it's just something way about how, like, I process media. I don't like long, I don't like movies either. I'm not a movie person, so that probably feeds into it. But I find it really interesting that you're saying that, like, it's the same way that Gilmore Girls is, like, a comfort show. That's really awesome. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I think it's really lovely and, like, I don't think it's something that Alex or I anticipated as a theme of this episode, but the idea that it is a version of escapism that is like separate and distinct from actually attending theater as escapism. It's almost like being a, a, like a voyeur because you're watching an audience's reaction. Mm. Like you can't get that in a pro shoot, you know, you can't get what the audience's authentic reaction was. Like some bootlegs are almost, fun because the audience had such an extreme reaction to something that happened or there was something went wrong or something and those are so fun it's like something you get like a voyeur of what that experience was you don't get the experience of being in the theater but you get a glimpse of it Mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of beautiful in its own that's cool yeah that's really interesting yeah I mean on the totally opposite end of the spectrum of Hamilton I have been obsessed with the soundboard of Carrie somebody many years ago synced up the audio of the Broadway production with really awful Mm -hmm. grainy videos of the UK production and I love them so much I've watched them so many times something like Carrie was so outrageous and was like so 
you know, their reaction to it at the time was so extreme because people were hearing about it and were hearing about how crazy it was. And so they were going into the theater with pretty intense preconceived notions. But because it was the 80s, nobody had actually heard any of it. Mm -hmm. So it's these really organic reactions that are also like very much based in like a, a really intense expectation. Like to me, the musical version of Carrie is high mm-hmm. camp for all of those reasons. Like both because of the musical itself and because the original production was absolutely just like batshit insane. But also because of the audience reaction because it was just wild and out of control because of the mm-hmm. word of mouth around mm-hmm. it. And like, you know, I was not alive in the 80s <laughs> so you know it's not like it's something that I ever could have experienced myself and also the fact that somebody with the production had like the awareness to record the soundboard audio mm-hmm. and like that it's been passed around in the theater community for decades I think is also really yeah. interesting in terms of preserving like something that just flopped so epically and never got a cast album and like wasn't recorded for Lincoln Center. Yeah. That was something we wanted to touch on too is the the history or the really long history of this. Yes. And that it bootlegs extend way beyond theater. Alex, you mentioned having bootlegs of Adina Menzel concerts, but yeah. that's still tangentially related to theater. But like concerts have been bootlegged and recorded mm-hmm. forever. When I was like eight or nine, I would ride around in the car and my parents would be playing bootlegs, burned from the internet to CD bootlegs of Bruce Springsteen concerts. And I thought that that was just a thing that people did. Like I didn't know it was illegal. They would be like, oh, my gosh, and we were at this show. And I was like, what? That's kind of cool. Like, that's a really interesting experience to have. But, like, it's been happening in music for years. It happened in film a lot more before things went more digital. You you could watch, like, a shaky recording Mm -hmm. of a movie Mm -hmm. in a theater. VHS tapes for, like, old school fandoms like Star Trek huge Mm -hmm. absolutely Mm -hmm. huge to have like a trading network where you could pass around oh my gosh the x-files big real big yeah it's like really ubiquitous in all sorts of sort of like nerdy subcultures and has been sort of forever um and it's also always been illegal but like this has thrived (laughs) anyway i don't know if anybody else remembers this like many years ago stephanie meyer published I think a chapter of this book that essentially is like the first Twilight book but told from Edward's perspective on her website and somehow somebody got the entire book and like leaked it and so she I may be recounting this slightly wrong so I don't know if there's any uh, Twilight super fans listening to this uh don't come for me But she, like, pitched a whole fit and then refused to publish the book. And, like, the fact that that exists even in literature is kind of wild. I mean, I guess calling Twilight literature is, like, really generous. But 
you know, <laughs> I think the point still stands. Well, no, it's actually a really big thing online for PDFs of books. I think that the best example of this is a lot of people don't want to buy textbooks. And so I think there's been a lot of trading online of different textbooks. I have had PDFs of books sent to me and ebooks and stuff like that. I don't know, support your local library. That's all I'm going to say about that. So the point that we were trying to make in talking about the history of bootlegs is that the internet did change everything for all genres of bootlegs. But it was really interesting in the theater community, in the Broadway fan community, that's when the early aughts is when that kind of community really started to emerge on message boards and, as you were saying before, live journal. And with the rise of digital bootlegs of theater suddenly the material that made you a fan of this thing of this genre was more accessible so that you know feeds your interest feeds your obsession you can talk to people about it so it's this really interesting growing period where the bootlegs were feeding the community and the community was feeding the bootlegs One of the things that I was thinking about when we were coming up with this episode is that, like, in 2013, I think it was, or no, it was 2011, there was an article where someone was like, the first Broadway bootleg has emerged. It was for the Book of Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no, (laughs) absolutely not. You're so behind the times. Yeah, literally, there's bootlegs of, like, Ethel Merman and Gypsy. Yeah. There's a chorus line documentary that uses a bootleg of a chorus line in the documentary. Yeah, Yeah. that's very true. That's very Mm -hmm. true. And I think that documentary came out before Book of Mormon. It did, yeah. Yeah, it did. Mm -hmm. That came out in, like, I think it was, like, 2008. It was, like, right after the revival closed. Um, Oh, my gosh, I forget her name, but she played um, uh, Val. Oh, Jessica Lee Golden. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) And I saw one of when she played Cassie. Yep, that and... video went super viral. Oh my god! I feel like my life would be lesser if I didn't see how, like, just the character that went into the mm. way she did that dance. That was it was yeah. unbelievable. So we did want to talk about so some of the reasons that people, I guess, argue that bootlegs should or shouldn't exist. Basically, dissecting all of the really reductive ways and really frustrating ways that people try to talk about bootlegs online. The conversation surfaces, I don't know, like with the cycle of the moon, like every so often. And it is infuriating every time. I think the first one is, or I think the biggest one is like the umbrella term of bootlegs being basically a a source of accessibility for theater, whether that's geographical accessibility, financial accessibility, Mm -hmm. or as we'll get into in certain ways, like actual disability accommodation accessibility. And as far as financial accessibility, people just are like, well, theater is too expensive, so I should have it for free. (laughs) (laughs) And bootlegs are free most of the time you can buy them. Mm-hmm. We do not endorse that. <laughs> but yes, like ticket prices have gone up so much. Um, even in the last 12 years that I've lived in New York City, ticket prices have 
like Mm -hmm. doubled. But there are actual tangible economic reasons that that is the case. And that is not a reason to just decide that because you can't afford it, you should suddenly just like have access, unfiltered access. There's the, so there's the question also of whether the existence of bootlegs or prevalence of bootlegs takes anything away from ticket sales of a show. Mm -hmm. Um, Are people going to use it as a replacement who would otherwise be able to see the show? And Personally, I don't think that's ever borne out in reality. But then there's also the question of like, okay, well, like once a show has closed, then it's simply historical record. Like we're talking about Carrie and there is a video bootleg on YouTube of the original production of Merrily We Roll Along. These were things that ran for so little time. Mm -hmm. Didn't, well, Merrily got recorded, but cast recording, but that weren't really otherwise preserved that are certainly like, I wasn't alive to see it. I'm not really... Are, are you taking anything away from anybody by watching that bootleg? I don't think so. Yeah, I and I was thinking about this. I was just talking with a friend about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And I was talking about how it's now in, in one part instead of two. And she was like, well, will I ever get to see the two parts? And I was like, I don't know. I, if they have plans to tour, I don't know if they're ever going to do the two parts. They might just stick with the one part. I kind of feel like the way bootlegs currently are that they are illegal and that there has to be some discretion you have to do a little bit digging for it and it's not like you're entitled to it but sort of like an underground thing it kind of makes it so that the people who access it are the people who are well understanding that it is no replacement for the live thing and i think oftentimes and i have no data back this up though but i think it might lead them to go oh this production is something i love and i want to see live because they know it's not the same you know, I think the easiest show to find 15 bootlegs right now is Wicked. And I think Wicked's doing just fine. And I think a lot of specific f- performers who have followings owe that to YouTube clips. There, There's an argument that sometimes they can help. But I absolutely see what you're saying, though, about the, well, it's, it, you didn't pay for that. <laughs> but I don't know. It's sort of like, I doubt that most the majority of the people would see a bootleg and think they'd seen the show. I think pro shoots are a different story. I think you can see a pro shoot of Hamilton and think you haven't seen, you've seen Hamilton, you don't need to see it. A lot of this sort of discourse online, particularly I feel like over the last couple of years it's come up. I have seen a lot of people arguing that basically they should be allowed to have unfettered access to not just bootlegs, but also like the Lincoln Center archival recordings for reasons of accessibility. And that's where the conversation about cost comes in. And for me, as somebody who is a pretty fierce advocate, I would say for accessibility, I just hate the focusing of the accessibility conversation on the idea that you are entitled somehow to watch an illegal recording because like you don't live close to New York and you can't afford to fly out to see a Broadway show and like go ahead like watch that bootleg but don't take that conversation about accessibility that we need to be having from you know community theater and academic and educational theater Mm -hmm. all the way on up to professional theater on Broadway and national tours and regional theater and everything in between 
I just think it's a really, it's a real derailing of an important conversation that needs to be had. And it just drives me absolutely insane. Yeah, like having access to bootlegs, pro shots, Lincoln Center archives, what have you, isn't a solution for the actual no, yeah. accessibility <laughs> yeah. issues right. yeah. in the industry that need to be solved. I was going to say, like, speaking of pro shots in the Lincoln Center archives is that was something that frequently came up yeah. over the course of the pandemic was like, just digitize it, just put it all online. It's available for free at this library. Like, why can't I have it? And it intersects with so many so many issues. The pseudo librarian in me is about to get really mad at that. <laughs> go off, go. No, it's just like because, oh my goodness, just like the copyright situations alone. And this is what makes bootlegs about like a, a Broadway show versus a concert so fascinating is that when you have a bootleg of a concert and you're listening to it, like you're listening to the songs, you already have access to the songs, most likely, unless it's like a weird cover or something on Spotify or whatever. But when you're watching a bootleg of a show, you have to take into account the work that was done on the costuming and the scenic design and the lighting and the directing and the choreography. You're, you are taking so many people people's labors and you're consuming it for free online as bootleg great libraries just can't give out all that crap for free on the internet without somehow brokering agreements with actors equity and those and all the unions that all those people belong to with the producers it is so much work and when people say just digitize everything that is so hard to do it is hard to do for any genre it's hard to do for any medium and in such a collaborative art form, it is so difficult to do. Yeah, and there's also not everything is recorded for Lincoln Center. Exactly. Because if something closes really fast, they don't have a chance to because mm -hmm. it takes an immense amount of money and labor and time to even get that recording in a way that is preservable and is high enough quality that people can go to the archives and watch and actually get detail out of it. And I'm going to just butt in and go to my regional theater high horse and also say that archiving is done very differently in the regional theater space. Oh, yeah. Even off Broadway. Yeah, that's true. Anything that's not Broadway, I should say. And we had we had people messaging my theater that I do front of house for over the summer saying, I really want to see this musical. Can you record it? Can you release it digitally? Oh my gosh, that would have been so much work, so much money that frankly, nonprofit theaters do not have. They do their archival recording from the back and maybe they'll let if that if that well yeah i mean uh, i'm speaking for like my theater right now but like, yeah, yeah they do it from like the back of the house it's not very good it's grainy it's not a great camera and you know if someone is maybe studying the show down the line they can contact the theater and ask can i see this and they'll say probably yes like most likely yes but you have to like come here and watch it and things like that. They're not going to just release it digitally. It's just, it really, really frustrates me that people think that this isn't people's labor going into it. 
it's kind of an offshoot of what you were saying, Dara, as like an entitlement and accessibility thing. But even, even in terms of whether you use bootlegs for your grad school studies, like I did. And I did. And I did. <laughs> yeah. There's so many different ways that you can potentially get at that information that, you know, in, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but I think that there needs to be a bigger, better conversation that I think has started because of the pandemic about recordings and what uses they are for and what they are doing for the different communities they're in. Can I ask a question that I don't know if either of you know the answer to, but I know that in it just seems easier to record things in England because... <laughs> King and I went over there and they recorded it in half a second. What, you know, they do, they have NT lives, they do all that stuff. What's, what, why legally is that so much easier? Partly because Actors' Equity in the UK is like way, 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 way weaker than it is in the US yeah. and way different. Mm-hmm. The, the whole union, the whole structure of the industry in terms of like unionization and mm-hmm. like economically is completely different. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't even need to be a member of Actors' Equity to perform on the West End the way you have to be a member of Actors' Equity to be on Broadway. So it's just a completely different ballgame. And, like, certainly you don't have to be an Equity member to be off West End or at the National. Okay. Yeah. And I I think also um, something that I do not see getting brought up a lot within these conversations about archival recordings is consent, which I find absolutely wild from a community that is that claims to be extremely progressive because the people involved, the creative people involved, they consented to have that particular performance or performances recorded for archival purposes, meaning that they would be accessible in a certain context by certain people with certain restrictions and regulations for research purposes. It's not recreational. It's not just watching it for funsies. And the thing is, if you're a student or even if you're just visiting New York, you can get like a temporary New York Public Library card and you can use that if you plan well enough in advance Mm -hmm. you can use that and make an appointment to go to lincoln center and watch something if you really want to do it it requires a little bit more effort than going onto youtube and looking up a bootleg but like you can do that even if you do not live in new york city but by doing that you're you're participating in something that the artists involved consented to because Mm -hmm you're watching a recording within the library for the performing arts at Lincoln Center that like all of those people agreed to have available with potentially certain conditions attached to it. That also I think absolutely needs to be said because especially within this conversation about on stage and on screen intimacy, productions that contain nudity or require performers to otherwise be vulnerable in a way that they may not want just like out on the internet for everybody to see like that's a big problem if you're saying that 
that should just be on the internet forever. And that just came up really recently with Take Me Out, which is coming mm-hmm. back. There's the whole addition of theaters making certain productions making people put their cell phones in yonder pouches Mm -hmm. so that they're not accessible during the performance at all that had to be added to take me out because someone filmed jesse williams naked in the show and yeah put it online and that is wildly inappropriate Mm -hmm. so those yonder pouches were in place before that happened yeah oh really yeah the production started with them because i went I think during previews and I had to put my phone in a yonder pouch like before I even got past the box office Mm -hmm. so I don't know how somebody managed to like film that but they did and the result of that was them having to be even more diligent and like hire extra I think ushers or security or something to monitor people because somebody decided that they were just like above those rules and could film somebody naked on stage and just put the clip on the internet, which I think is like a a sort of negative side of, of the voyeur aspect that Leah was talking about because you have like this famous person in a play that requires him to get naked as part of the storytelling. And it isn't sexual and it isn't like meant to be titillating in any way but someone decided that they were going to be the one to put jesse williams penis on the internet and to me that's just it's despicable it was the same problem with uh daniel radcliffe and equus i remember yes yeah Yeah. it came up with um with audrey mcdonald in uh frankie and johnny and the claire de lune somebody filmed Mm -hmm. that and put that nude scene on the internet yeah i will say the flip side of that is i do have a pet peeve for actors going on twitter and ranting about just in a very dramatic way how their entire are pulling a pile of pone or ranting about how their entire night was ruined because they were distracted by this camera because i see fourth grade recitals with an entire room full of cell phones pointed at them and they do just fine I, you go to Disney World and those performers are doing dangerous stuff with sanctioned cell phone recordings and they're doing just fine. And part of your job as an actor is to deal with these distractions. These people are allowed to play pretend to do their dreams for a living because the fan base exists, because the fans mm-hmm. support them, because the fans give their hard-earned money to them. Art needs to be a business. It needs to be a safe place for the former. It needs to be a place where they can be compensated, but it also needs to be for the viewer. Mm-hmm. I will also add that there's a difference between the video and audio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Recording audio disrupts literally no one. And video is obviously more distracting. Yeah. And there yeah. are measures people can take and that I've heard of people taking to make it less obvious, less distracting for other audience members, less distracting for the performers. And we'll like, cover up little indicator lights with like electrical tape or cover any like their phone screen Mm -hmm. or anything you also always see the um if you watch a video bootleg of anything like there's always the the little like duck yeah (laughs) you know when an usher has walked by you just the person who is living their dreams on broadway versus the kid who 
might be in a really tough situation and not able to access theater. I'm just, like I said, my sympathies are always going to go more towards them. This is an audience event. And that's the thing is I think it needs to be concentrated on the audience more. Mm. I think we have a little bit of a cult devotion to the performer. And I think we need to think more about the audience a little bit. Yeah. Um, because those are the people, those are the people who make it happen. Like we talk about all the little details of a show that make it happen, but the biggest detail is the audience. None of it exists if there's not people willing to spend their extra money on a theater ticket mm -hmm. and support them and be a present audience member. Yeah, that's like a really good, I think that that's a really good point in support of like more pro shots. You know, the more the more pro shot mentality. Mm -hmm. And I think it does get younger people into yeah. theater, quite frankly. I think it does. No, I, I actually will agree with that. I really think it does. Um, I will also say that during the pandemic, I had Broadway HD for like a month because um, <laughs> of like a for like a promo um but go through all of it no i didn't go through all of it actually but i did see one show that i absolutely loved that i still listen to and that i'm never probably going to have a chance to see because it was so specific and if you haven't listened to ernest shackleton loves me get on that train it is so good um or if it's still on broadway hd i highly suggest you subscribe for a month and watch it it's, it's like 10 or 15 dollars totally worth it but um, I never would have discovered that without that pro shot being made. And so I do think that the pro, the, the pro pro shot mentality has something to it. I will also say that more pro shots would definitely lead to more unauthorized productions where people have not bought the rights. And that is a huge problem for the publishing companies and everyone, again, everyone involved, all the writers, everyone who has a stake in that. And I'm willing to bet that that is a huge concern for a lot of people. We recently did have Church Hamilton in, mm -hmm. was in Texas. It was somewhere in Texas. It was somewhere yeah. in Texas where they just did it illegally. I just don't think that we want to see more of that as an industry. No. Yeah. And I mean, also making pro shots and distributing them is so cost prohibitive. Yep. Like, they were able to do it for Hamilton because they are rolling in the cash over there. And I think at the time they shot that, they had recouped their initial investment or they were close to doing it. And certainly, like, they have made back that money tenfold since that recording was done. And it was released during the pandemic when you couldn't see it anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it also was distributed on Disney Plus and Disney money is like a whole you know separate category of <laughs> money but you know when we're talking about these smaller Broadway shows that often like struggle to fill their houses they don't have hundreds of thousands and even millions of dollars laying around to properly compensate all of the artists involved and also just like pay for a pro shot to be filmed at the level that Hamilton was filmed at. And I think it's it's a great pro shot, but also doing it that way is so unbelievably cost prohibitive. Most pro shots aren't that good either mm -hmm. as the Hamilton one. Yeah, right. Like, you ever see the Shrek one? It's horrific. <laughs> it's genuinely horrifying. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> 
even Come From Away, I love that show to death. And they were they filmed it during the pandemic, so there was no audience. So that screwed things up. But it was just like, this doesn't have the magic the way that I think Hamilton and Newsies are two of the ones where I think mm, they Newsies just did something magical when they, were, when they were shot. But this is why I kind of think the, the current, like the ecosystem of bootlegs kind of doesn't need to be fussed with. It's this kind of underground way to kind of enjoy this thing. Here's my pushback to that is that yeah, I please think, do. <laughs> because I think, so there's like a couple things. First of all, like part of the problem and part of why I think the conversation arises on Twitter and the internet in general so often is because it isn't underground anymore. That's yeah, that's fair. It isn't an underground thing anymore. Now, instead of calling it like back in the day when we were talking about like our GeoCities and Angel Fire lists or whatever, like I remember people calling it like their shoe closet or something like that. Like mm -hmm, that was sort yeah. of the code word, like boot shoe. But now it's like you could search I don't know the origins of this, but slime tutorial. Yeah. Um, yeah. For every show. And it's like they're on YouTube, like the full shows, if you just like sort of know what to search. That's still kind of comparatively underground though. Like you've gotta be a theater nerd to do that or to want that. So I posted some um tweets, screenshots of tweets. You know, we brought up some people who are like really, really mm -hmm. vocally against it. There are certainly a lot of people who, like actors who are really against it, partly because of the distraction factor, which we already covered. But yeah. like Lin-Manuel Miranda tweeted, I don't even, this would have been. I think those tweets were pre-Hamilton, yeah. Yeah, these are pre-Hamilton. Quoting the tweet here, a bootleg with terrible audio and shaky visuals doesn't preserve my work, it misrepresents it. And I don't know that anybody can make an argument saying like that that is false. It does, like, and I think we've already covered that by saying these are not in any way an actual replacement for actually going to a show and experiencing the show how it's meant to be experienced. So like, that's fair. I think that's a fair criticism and response for Lynn to be making. And there's also, but at the same time, it's like the year before that. Not even four months before that. Oh, you're right. It was literally four months before that tweet I just quoted from Lynn. <laughs> Lynn tweeted, I have a bootleg of No Good Deed from Wicked in German. It's awesome. If you see me, I'll play it for you. It's on my iPod. And so it's like, this is, you know, it's different. But he, and he also, at another point, I didn't screenshot it, but like after, I think it was of closing night of In the Heights, he shared a bootleg video specifically of Carnival del Barrio because even he was like, I want to relive this experience as a performer because it was mm -hmm. the voyeurism of like, yeah, you got to watch mm -hmm. the audience like absolutely mm -hmm. losing their shit at yeah. closing night. And, you know, there there's something to that. But the um, the way that bootlegs have become so not underground, mm -hmm. underground still in the sense of like theater is still a subculture broadly speaking but they're not underground within theater um and so it, it, people are tagging performers on twitter and it's like it's not appropriate it's like that that crosses a line i feel that's that's like a a bragging about like 
transparently illegal behavior. Yeah, I mean, also, I work at a Broadway show that our audience is almost entirely made up of people who have never seen a Broadway show before. And I catch people filming daily, all the time. And they are recording videos and literally, like, putting it on their Snapchat or their Insta story or, like, sending it to family members. And these are often people who, like, their first language isn't English. And, like, so they they may not even speak English well enough to fully understand the show because it's a play. But still, they're taking videos of it and, like, shitty, grainy videos from far away And, like, you know, sometimes putting it on their public social media because, like, Broadway, when we're talking about Broadway bootlegs and especially, like, big name Broadway shows, people recognize what that is for the most part. And so there definitely is kind of, like, a bragging element of it, Mm -hmm. of, like, I'm seeing this big Broadway show... I'm going to post this video of, like, this cool stage thing that's happening literally to my Instagram. And it makes me crazy, both because people are just, like, so blatant about it. And also because, like, I just, for me, when I go to the theater, like, my attitude about it is that I'm just going to, like, sit back and I am going to watch the show and be fully focused on that. But I think it's, I think like the advent of social media in the last decade or so and the way that we use it has also just changed the landscape so much because we have these people coming into my show who are from all over the world and, you know, are trying to take pictures and videos of this show that is theoretically supposed to be like a singular experience that you're only getting when you're sitting inside of the Broadway theater in New York city. So I like, I also think that that is a huge factor and that has made it so that, you know, even people who don't fully understand like the, I guess the, the, you know, the theater subculture or like that there is a theater community at all are still making their own bootlegs because we all have cameras in our pockets now. I was going to say to piggyback off of that, I work front of house at a regional theater where we get a lot of people who have never been to a play before and they don't know that you can't film. This Mm -hmm. happens, it happens Mm -hmm. way more than you would think. And that is part of the larger conversation about theater etiquette and what is what is good, what is bad. Also, what I'll say is that a lot of regional theaters have been pushing digital programs. So people have their phones out for the mm-hmm. performance anyway, and that's expected. We no longer say put your phones away. We now say silence your phones. And so people, I believe, understand it to be if the phone's not making any noise, like what then like I can use it. Like, what is the harm? Which some people were doing anyway, pre-pandemic. But now that it's more normalized to have your phone going at a show, you know, I think that 
these things are going to become more and more common. At the same time, it's really exciting to see people who are like seeing their first musical, seeing their first play. You want them to enjoy it. You really do. I don't know. It's a hard position to be in, though, because you, again, the, the issue of copyright and the issue of consent is really, it's really tough. It's really tough when you want to be serving the theater's best interests and the audience's best interests in those situations. Yeah, and the one thing I was just going to say is that, like, the consent doesn't only apply when there's nudity. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I also take my position as, like, essentially being an ambassador for the show that I usher for very seriously, you know, especially because of the audiences that we get. And the whole, like, bootlegging aspect really frustrates me because it ends up impinging on other people's experiences because it's part of my job to stop that from happening. And as angry as it makes me when I see people like blatantly filming and I have absolutely just like yelled stop filming at people because even if you like shine a flashlight right in their face they like don't see you because they're in the phone and the person who is passionate about finding ways to get people to love and engage in theater like hurts a little bit when I have to do that because ultimately like I don't want to you know publicly embarrass somebody in the middle of a Broadway theater and like I don't want to yell at people I don't want to shine a flashlight in their faces like I wish that everybody would just like just watch the show and like you can engage with it in whatever way is organic for you and I I think that that is something that goes back to like we have this frame of like you have to sit still and be completely quiet and like you know not distract anybody and like that's just not realistic first of all you know things happen (laughs) like you have a bunch of human beings in the same room you know there's gonna be stuff that happens that is distracting but like I have never had a problem with like truly organic reactions like we get a lot of children at my show and sometimes like you know characters will kiss and a little kid will be like ew (laughs) but it's like that's funny Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's also just like really genuine and in the moment Mm -hmm. and evidence that they're watching and engaged exactly so to me that's not distracting or when people like gasp or even like scream sometimes like when it's happening in a way and you can you can tell especially if you see theater often you can tell when vocalizing is performative versus genuine it's actually really really obvious just in terms of like human behavior but i i think that if you're sitting there on your phone filming and like trying to capture something for like instagram or to send to your friends or your family or whatever you're no longer engaging with the show in an organic way. There's a barrier between you and the performance that you have put there. And then you are forcing the people whose job it is to make sure that everybody is having the best experience possible to like come at you and tell you like, no, you can't do that. 
uh, in your experience, do you think there is such a thing? So I'm always curious about this. Mm-hmm. Is there a way, do you think, to record that is not distracting? Like, does that exist? If someone's, like, actually trying to record, like, because that's what they, they do. Video um, or audio. I mean, yeah, a video, I would say. Is there a way to do video without distracting, like, the entire row around them? I mean, given the fact that there are, like, many, many full show bootlegs out there <laughs> that presumably, like, no usher caught or saw, certainly it's possible. But those people tend to be relatively frequent bootleggers. <laughs> and I I mean, what I'm talking about is I literally will catch people like holding their phone up in front of their face like this. Like, I, I realize this is an audio medium, so nobody else can see me, but like <laughs> just blatantly <laughs> holding their phone up in front of their face, like zooming in on stuff. You know, I've we've had flashes go off, like all kinds of stuff. And also the show that I work is extremely tech heavy. And so if there's a light out of nowhere or like if, you know, if the performers are literally like half an inch off of where they're supposed to be, somebody could get seriously, seriously hurt. Mm -hmm. And that's also a huge issue, especially Mm -hmm. when we're talking about big commercial Broadway shows, because a lot of them are like that, where it's like you have to be as a as the performer on stage, 100% engaged 100% of the time, or you are potentially putting yourself and your fellow performers and the crew in a situation that becomes physically dangerous. Like literally life-threatening. People have gotten hurt doing my show. I guess I'm kind of curious... Danielle brought up the point that there are shows that have built-in moments for people to take their phones out and record, like, six kind of encourages that. I feel like I've been to other shows that have encouraged that, but I'm I'm drawing a blank right now. I think Moulin Rouge, am I making that I up? I haven't seen Moulin Rouge, so I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't but I feel like there's, like, a YouTube, like, I feel like I've seen a lot of, like, the very last part on YouTube. It's mm-hmm. a lot of the, like, mega mix kind of yeah. mega mix. sixes as well. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, going forward, I have a couple of questions for both of you. I would be, I'm interested to hear that, like, if there were suddenly massive restrictions on bootlegs to the point that, like, watching them or listening to them was able to be tracked and you could face, like, fines or consequences for that activity, like, how would you feel about it? And, like, what would you do? I mean, I think we already established I'm going to jail, so... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my response, and this is my, like, intensely just logical brain that has trouble with, like, insane hypotheticals, (laughs) I would just be like, why this? Like, why is this the thing that you're focusing on when you could be doing so many other things with that time and presumably money that that takes? And I I say that with the knowledge that, like, I work at a show that at least pre-pandemic had, like, multiple people who their job was to, like, call the internet for bootlegs of the show and Mm -hmm. and get them taken down. For me, actually, like, being somebody that, that works in theater and has lived in New York for a really long time, I don't really consume bootlegs very often anymore. I did it much more frequently when I was younger and when I wasn't living in New York and wasn't able to see like everything that I wanted to see 
because of, you know, just time constraints and like being a teenager in high school. So I don't know that it would impact me personally all that much. Except, like, maybe I would, you know, pay for YouTube premium to, like, download the off-Broadway bootleg of Spring Awakening. But, like, (laughs) (laughs) before it got taken away from me. (laughs) I hadn't thought about it in terms of age. Because I felt like bootlegs are so ubiquitous. But I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. Because a lot of the people who are... I guess like the biggest consumers of bootlegs are young and don't have the autonomy, let alone the money to travel to New York or like if they're in New York to just to or near New York afford to come and see a show. And it isn't even so much a question of like, well, tickets are expensive and I can't afford it. So blah, blah, blah. It's like I'm 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm 15 mm-hmm. and my parents won't let me go to New York by myself because I want to <laughs> see this Broadway show. Right. And it's like, <laughs> I just hadn't thought about it in that way before. And it's, that makes like the, the discourse on Twitter even more frustrating because it's like, and I've seen it happen where like certain actors who are like really opposed or not even actors, just like people in the industry who are really opposed to bootlegs will like get into it with people mm-hmm. back and forth with with teenagers and then it's like you're <laughs> yelling at a 14 year old right i mean and i've right. had you know and i've seen certain people on twitter come to that realization and be like listen like i'm sorry i yelled at you because you're a child but like <laughs> also yeah. Because you're a child, I need to explain to you the realities of how some things in this industry work and why you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and I I think that like my frustration with the discourse ultimately comes from like n- not people not knowing because that's not their fault, but once they've had something to explain to them, even kindly and gently, from somebody that works in the industry and makes their living doing this and still feels like they are entitled to argue with that person about the realities of the business and working in theater. You can make an argument that, like, certain things should be changed. And, like, that's, you know, a whole separate conversation. And again, as I said at the beginning of this this podcast, like, go and watch a bootleg. Morally, I don't really fall on either side of it do what you want to do it's on the internet it's available to you like go and do it but don't argue with me on twitter about you know your like moral right to access that bootleg right Mm -hmm. i think it's the i think so many people here here i solved it everybody the um (laughs) the the heart of it is that it's turned into some kind of moral or ethical issue at all beyond things like nudity which absolutely are ethical issues but the mere existence of bootlegs and the consumption of things that are available to you is it's neither like it's neither good nor bad it just is you don't have a moral right to have these things, but 
beyond the like logistical realities and explanations about why it's illegal in the first place and why they can you know be dangerous or distracting or any number of things for any number of reasons to record them you also don't have you're also those people against it also don't have a moral high ground yeah and i like there's you see this in the industry like there you know we talked about people talking on twitter about how against bootlegs they are but it's like going back i guess to it being more underground quote unquote off of social media person to person i know a whole lot of broadway actors and writers who like actively seek them out and and there are a lot of um i'm gonna say valid reasons to want bootlegs um in the sense of like loving something is valid um and wanting more of that thing if it's available in some way is valid and it's like i often seek out bootlegs still just like audios or whatever of understudies who i've loved or i'm curious about and understudies themselves will seek out bootlegs of the one time they went on (laughs) because they want it so I think like that's just more proof of neither side has a moral high ground, neither side is right. It's just there's go there's different views on it both alongside the simple reality that it is illegal. <laughs> I'm having a wild memory, actually, of uh, on Smash season two, where they <laughs> yes. open the pre-opening, the recording was like, yeah, and record if you want. We don't own it any more than you do. And there was like proof that the show was like punk. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Love me a Smash reference. I'm actually I actually have been like occasionally going back and watching it. I have to watch the season one finale and then I'll be into season two. So like, I'm just going to sum it up. And say it seems like bootlegs are not going away. Bootlegs seem to be pretty here to stay. They definitely help connect fans and enhance the fandom in a way that I think is really essential. That doesn't really exist in, in, I would say, other like kinds of fandoms outside of theater. At the same time, I think that a lot of the conversations we've had regarding consent and, you know, distractions and, like, all the legalities concerned are super, super, super valid. So, I guess, I don't know, what do you guys... You don't have a solution. There's no no solution. There's no solution. We didn't solve any... We're not here to solve anything, Danielle. We're here to talk about (laughs) shit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think something that I have learned the longer that I have studied theater and the longer that I have made work and, like, the more types of work that I have made and done is, like, I don't know that there's a solid conclusion to anything because I, you know, and I'm coming from, like, maybe more of an academic place, which is you know, its own sphere. 
But the more education I've gotten, the more questions I have about Mm -hmm. this medium and, like, what it means to do this for a living. And I think that, I don't know, this is, like, a general human thing, maybe. I think we have to be okay with not having an answer to everything and also not assigning a moral value to everything in the universe. And I, th- I think that this mm-hmm. is a perfect example of that because, you know, I certainly am not somebody who, like, minces words and, like, <laughs> you know, dilutes my opinions on stuff. But I really don't fall on either side of this debate because, like, I both see and understand very intimately a lot of the issues that are connected with it, but I also have made and consumed bootlegs myself since I can remember, like, since I was active in, in theater fandom circles on the internet. And I I think that it's really good and healthy to have these deeper conversations about it, because I think we talked about a lot of stuff that is absent from the the super visible Twitter discourse, because Twitter is not a good place for nuance, but... <laughs> it literally, by design, is reductive. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I have learned to be okay with ending with a question. And I, I think that that's yeah. important. I also think there's, I think a lot of the times, a lot of, even though there is no answer, a lot of an answer can be moderation. And it's really hard, though, because that's very individual. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't have a group meeting of all people who go to theater and say, hey, look, when they're naked, don't do it. Duh. It seems like the extremes of the situation are what we always look at. And it's sort of like the simplest solution would be, like, stop doing the extremes and let the, mm. the kind of the mediums exist. Like, hey, if you know, Dara stopping someone who has the phone right up to their face is very reasonable. Somebody just kind of consuming the chorus line revival that no longer exists is pretty reasonable. Problem is we get the extremes and then that's all we talk about. Mm -hmm. And it's, but at the same time, how do you regulate not having the extremes happen? It's, It's sort of like, can we all be adults and be logical about this, but we're not because humans are very messy people. Yeah, and I think, Similar to Dara, like the more I've been in theater, the more I've studied it. It's not only do I have more and more questions about the art form itself, but it's also more questions about what it means to be an audience member and what it means to be a fan mm-hmm. of something. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that we had both sides of those things represented in mm-hmm. this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I don't think we really got to touch on, but like being a little bit more academic <laughs> for a hot second theater is so ephemeral and so much of the art form is there is so much beauty and it being ephemeral and you're not able to experience the same thing over and over at least live and so I don't know I think that I would like to see in the future maybe like a deeper appreciation for that whether you consume bootlegs or not like where your relationship with that sort of blink and you miss it kind of nature of theater where that lies for you yeah and I think also something that I feel like is embedded in a lot of the discourse about this is the the sort of upholding of Broadway as the pinnacle of live theater Mm -hmm. 
And that's just not, that's just not the reality. There are incredible regional theaters all over the country that do amazing work. And a lot of those actors work on Broadway too. It's not Mm -hmm. like the two things are are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. But my response often to, you know, people who are saying like, well, I can't see a show unless I like watch this Broadway bootleg. It's like, no, you can. You can go see a show at your local college or you can go see a show at a regional theater that maybe is like, you know, a two hour drive from you instead of flying across the country. There is theater everywhere and there is professional theater everywhere. You just have to look for it and make a little Mm -hmm. bit of an effort to find it. And there is really amazing work that happens outside of New York. And also in New York, there's really amazing work that happens that is not on Broadway. I will push back on that a little bit though, because I I hear that and I I absolutely support that. And I love going to regional theater. And there's a lot of really special stuff that I've gotten to see because I see regional theater. But at the same time, there is, I think, a big difference between what you see on Broadway and what you see in regional theater. And not just that, but the regional theater stuff is not getting a cast album. It's not having a following. It's not something you can discourse in the same way you can mm-hmm. the Broadway shows. Like the Broadway shows are what the fandom is talking about. And it's something that can worm its way into your heart in a different way because that's where the mainstream of theater is. You're not going to see a production of a new show that's premiering at your local theater on TV and see that you know performance on the Tonys and have it warm into your weight and heart so that you're your mind goes, I need to know what the rest of this is. You don't get a taste of it. You mm-hmm. don't get that obsession fed to you. So I think we can't pretend that Broadway isn't what it is to theater people. I think we can't overlook regional theater. That's important too. But I think it's just also, there's there's just something about it that is a different level to your average theater fan. Yeah, I think that's also the difference between like the perspective of just like being an audience member or being a fan of theater as an art form versus I am a fan of this show. I am a fan of this Yes, exactly. Because if you think about it, like, say I lived in California and I love the Hadestown cast recording. I love it. I listen Mm -hmm. to all of them because there's multiple. I I listen to all of them. They're all great. They're all stupendous. say that you listen early on, you then have to wait for those productions to come to you via tour or region. And we live in America and we don't like to wait for shit. (laughs) (laughs) This is a very prevalent attitude. So I think that that plays into it a little bit too. Well, there's also the the original cast, the show is written with them. You know, there is something very different about seeing the original cast versus even the mm-hmm. tour cast. I mean, they rehearse for six weeks. They're selected very carefully. and But even if it might, by the time it gets to you, it might not be the first tour cast. They might be thrown in. And I've seen incredible productions that way. But every time you see an original cast, it's just a different kind of show. Mm-hmm. So I can definitely see, especially for, you know, if you're lucky enough, you save your pennies and you go and you see that expensive national tour and you think, I want to see what the original cast was. I think that's very important and very valid but yeah looking at different casts is a huge reason that bootlegs persist yeah i mean talking about like wicked yeah 
people are obsessed with, you know, the standby for Alphaba on the second national tour in 2015, who did the show in like three cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm still obsessed with the Alphaba I saw, who was like a one off. I think she did two cities, and I look for her videos regularly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there is an entire like subset of fandom that is dedicated to that Mm -hmm. and i think that that is like as a performer like i think that that is very cool that like people who are not big stars have people who actively look for videos of their performances because they you know saw them once at a random tour stop on, you know, the 500th national tour of Phantom. Like, mm-hmm. that's cool. Mm-hmm. I And I think that that's, like, a maybe a good consequence yeah. of bootleg culture. There are performances that, you know, happened earlier on in the history of Wicked that are now, like, legendary that started on tour. Like, you know, Megan Hilty mm-hmm. and, like, mm-hmm. Julia Murney and Stephanie J. Block. All of those people did it not on Broadway first Mm -hmm. and then ended up coming to Broadway, I think, in part because there was so much positive attention on the bootlegs of their performances. I saw Anna Lee Ashford as an understudy for Kendra Kassebaum on the tour of Wicked. And everyone at intermission was like, who is this bitch? Like, (laughs) she's so goddamn good. And I saw, like, people looking for her on YouTube. And then suddenly she was in Legally Blonde. And then she was on Wicked with Stephanie J. Block. And now she's Annalie Ashford. Yeah. Yeah. And she won a Tony Award. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've been talking for a while. So is if we want to do round robin, does everyone have a favorite bootleg? Can everyone pick a favorite bootleg? Audio or video? I would say, like, you can do one of each. Okay, my favorite... um, Okay, I'm doing a tie for video. Okay. It's a preview of Waitress that I love. The way they did some of the line deliveries, they ended up changing, but I loved the ones on the bootleg that I saw. I don't know, that whole bootleg just to me is, like, my favorite comfort thing to go to. And the other one, I know it's just because I love the show and I never got to see it, except for I saw the tour and it doesn't really work for me if it's in a proscenium fun home, <laughs> is just anytime that that bench starts rotating and Allison is talk, say something, talk to me, that stands up and yells at her dad in song, I'm just, I'm, I'm a mess. And my favorite audio, I don't even think it's that good of a show, but like my brain goes to like, how would this be better? audio bootleg of Sense and Sensibility at the Old Globe Theater in San Francisco. And I'm obsessed with all things Jane Austen and making into a musical. And don't get me started on Jane Eyre the musical. I will, I, my brain will fall out <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but there's a lot of gorgeous stuff in it. And there's, you know, it's got Megan McGinnis. And I listen to it a lot. I think my favorite video is second preview of title of show. I just... Love title of show so much, and always will. And then audio, gotta say, I just like deeply love that a soundboard audio of Ethel Merman's final performance as Mama Rose and Gypsy even exists. Mm-hmm. So it's that. So I I am not as big 
in the bootleg scene. It's been very sporadic over the years, but I will say I was at the closing performance of Once on Broadway and it was a transformative experience. And I do listen to the I'm getting chills just thinking about it. The bootleg audio recording of When Your Mind's Made Up because the cast gave 120%. They left everything on that stage. And remembering that and how that felt in that theater is everything. So that's my favorite audio. For video, um, I love watching Lindsay Mendez sing The Wizard and I, but also I, this is like very random, but I love watching the quick change in Mean Girls where she goes from the Halloween costume to her school clothes like over and over. And I'm so thankful that bootlegs of that exist. <laughs> it's just pure magic. And I love it. Nothing is better than a quick... I'm going to revise my answer and say my favorite video bootleg is the YouTube compilation of all the girls saying Courtney take your break. I was going to say that. I was going to say it was either... No, you know what I was going to say? I was going to say it's the bridges you've crossed. You didn't know you've crossed till you've crossed compilation. Also very good. So... Video, I've already mentioned several times in this recording. It's the Off-Broadway Spring Awakening. It's so fucking good. And, like, I think that that is just a case of all of those people and the synergy of that and, like, the energy of it. And I saw the original cast of Spring Awakening several times on Broadway. But, like, there is just something to the energy of hearing the audience experiencing this show without knowing anything about it or knowing who any of these people are. And also, you know, like, adorable, sweet 20-year-old Jonathan Groff just giving such a... It's such a great performance. And, like, Johnny Gallagher, unbelievable. Gideon Glick, like, in a tiny role. Lily Cooper, like, all of these people are just amazing and like you know they were they were babies back then so were we (laughs) like yeah Mm -hmm. as were we you know and then audio I have to cheat and say two because I can't I cannot pick (laughs) the first one is the soundboard of Carrie because I love I love a flop and I I love like a big epic insane flop and that's that's Carrie to a T. And then also Gerard Canonico going on for Jeremy in Be More Chill. Yes. Just the way that he sings that score. It's so good. I also have to add the one time Jen Colella went on for Adina and If Then. <laughs> yes. 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 Okay, my favorite bootleg videos Alex sent me. It was the Misfit Theater of Into the Woods production. The Misfit Theater or the... Sorry, not Misfit Theater. Fiasco? Fiasco Theater, thank you. Oh my God, I watch that so often. The way they do the cow is just a guy wearing a bell who says moo, (laughs) and it's perfect. Um, My other one is An Act of God with Sean Hayes. It's so funny, so good. Actually, Jim Parsons is another one, either of those two. But it's the that's the only way to really consume that. It's almost like a, a stand-up record for me, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not like you can get an album of that. So those are actually probably the ones I watch the most. Well, this has been like a really great discussion. 
about so much pertaining to bootleg culture. So uh, we want to thank you both so much for joining our podcast in its little fledgling days. Where can people find you on the socials if you want them to find you and send you bootlegs? (laughs) On Twitter, I am at Epstein Dara. And then on Instagram, I am Dara.Epstein. So if you Google my name, you will probably find me or you will find the person that I like to call alternate universe me, who is (laughs) uh, no longer a performer, I don't think, but she was like an opera singer and a soprano and lived in New York. And her name is also Dara Epstein. So (laughs) all right, there's there's two of me on the Internet. But um, I am not an opera singer. <laughs> but you are a soprano. I am a soprano, and I um, I am on the internet. I'm not really on the internet at the moment, but I do have a Twitter handle. If you you really want to check it out, at Leah L E A H is magical, and that's uh, that's kind of it. Great, and you can find Partial View Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon. All of them are at Partial View Pod. We're also at partialviewpod.com, which is where you can find show notes and episode transcripts. And please, as the saying goes, rate, review, and subscribe. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye.